Not sure we need a round of applause, but maybe we can save it for later. <laughs> just a couple of things before I get started. Um, I just noticed that I think I'm actually the youngest person in this room. That's at the moment, except for that one. <laughs> she trumps me just by a little bit. Um, and one other thing I wanted to share, it's um, just quickly off the back of what Dad shared with communion, uh, just something I found out the other day and I thought it might be helpful to share. Jesus, often called the bread of life, it was interesting that he was born in Bethlehem because uh, lechem in uh, Hebrew is the word for bread and uh, Beth is the word for house, house of bread. It's interesting that the bread of life would come from the house of bread. There's a bun in the oven for sure. Um, Here we go. Sorry. Uh, I thank you for the opportunity to come and share uh, this morning. I'm really looking forward to uh, opening up um, our series uh, in Isaiah, particularly focusing on looking at the idea of suffering and salvation. Um, as it's the first sermon of the series, this is going to be like a really foundational uh, sermon. We're going to be uh, essentially painting with a big paintbrush and laying down the foundation coat for the rest of the series. Um, so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at pretty much the whole story of the Bible and following a few key themes through the story, um, particular themes that come up uh, in Isaiah. And uh, so it's not going to be your typical sermon, it might be sort of sandwiched halfway between a lecture and a sermon, but I hope that it's really, really engaging for you and uh, you get to feel the story uh, that unfolds throughout the scriptures. So um, please join with me in prayer as we, as we begin. Heavenly Father, as we uh, come before you this morning, we pray that you would speak to each and every one of us uh, through your word. Uh, you promised that you would, and uh, we know that you will. I pray that you would use me, that anything that is not of you would fall away and everything that is of you uh, would come to the fore and um, grow deep into people's lives. I pray this in your name. Amen. Now, the other thing I want to say at the start here is that in this congregation, we have a wide variety of people from different uh, Christian levels, uh, levels of Christian experience. Some people have been followers of Jesus for a very long time and have studied about him and even... Uh, been ministers. But there are others who are just exploring Christianity. It's not something that you've been around much before or uh, something that you're just interested in now. And um, hopefully, there's something in this sermon for all of you. Uh, those who've uh, been around for a long time, you're going to be reminded of things that you've heard before, but I pray that they would um, stick fresh for you. And for those of you who are new to the faith, I hope this really helps you fit together the story of the Bible how it all fits together and uh, what God has been saying throughout history. And we're going to do that by looking at three themes, uh, three particular themes and how they carry through the story of Scripture. Uh, these themes by no means are comprehensive. They aren't the only themes that are important, uh, but um, these are the ones that I've chosen because they really resonate with uh, particularly the book of Isaiah. So, with that being said, we're going to start where the Bible starts, which is in Genesis chapter 1. I think we've, uh, it was working before, but we just seem to have, oh, here we go. Yeah, 
clickers just died, unfortunately, but that, that's okay. We're going to start with the story of creation. One thing you notice uh, that stands out right away as you start to read the story of creation uh, is that whatever God says happens. Whatever he says happens. If you look at Genesis 1 verse 3, it says, And God said, let there be light, and there was light. This pattern repeats seven times throughout that chapter. And God said, and then, and there was. This pattern repeats constantly throughout the first chapter, and then continues throughout the rest of Scripture. God always announces what he's going to do, and it comes to pass. It's almost like in saying it, he makes it happen. And this, yeah, this comes, oh, sorry, it was printed on double-sided pages. I was started reading the wrong page, and I was like, what's going on? That doesn't make any sense. Sorry, double-sided pages, we're here, we're here, we're here with you, all right. Um, so that's the first theme, sorry, the first theme that we're chasing through the scripture is that when God speaks, it happens. When God speaks, it happens. The second theme I wanted to notice is that uh, there are no other gods involved in creation. Verse 3 simply says, God. Not gods, not the gods. This is really important because if you were one of the first people to hear this story as an ancient Israelite, uh, this was a radically different belief to every single person that lived around you. Um, there are other creation stories that we have from the cultures that sort of were around the Israelites and they're not dissimilar from this story but there is one big difference, and that is that in the Bible story, there is only one God. That's not a competition or fighting in the creation of the world. There is only one God, or there is only one true God. That's the second theme we're going to trace throughout the Scriptures. All right. Um, the third theme I want us to trace throughout the Bible um, comes because humans do not honour God as the only God. And they end up living in exile. This all comes about through the incident of what we often call the fall. Just after the creation story in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, who are the first humans in the story and represent all of humanity, they fail to honour God and are disobedient to him. And this broke humanity's relationship with God and it brought discord into the world. Uh, it broke the harmony and the perfection that was in the world at the time. And as such, humanity is separated and broken, um, banished from the perfection of where they had been. Um, Genesis 3.23 says, So the Lord banished him, encapsulating all of humanity, uh, from the Garden of Eden, from their relationship with God. And the reason that he is banished is because he does not honour the one true God. So those are our three themes. What God says will happen. Uh, there is only one God and those who don't honour him live in exile. So we're going to trace those throughout the Bible story. We've spoken about creation and the fall. Uh, from there, the Bible story gets fascinating, really interesting for the next few chapters. We've got some great, really great stories, but we can't touch on them today because we don't have enough time. But then we get to Genesis chapter 12. This is a really significant turning point in the Bible story. And it's in Genesis 12 where we meet a man called Abram, who then later becomes known as Abraham. 
Uh, God speaks to this guy, Abraham, in this part of Scripture, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 4. I'll read it for us. Uh, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. You see, Abraham was promised by God a land and a nation. And in response, instead of being disobedient like Adam and Eve had been, Abraham listens to God as the one true God. And this promise of a land and a nation meant that they would no longer be living in exile. And this promise wasn't just to Abraham, but to all of his descendants. And in fact, all people would be blessed this way. And remember, what God says will happen. And so the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament follows the story of Abraham and his descendants, uh, through whom the world will be blessed. And along the way, we meet Abraham's grandson, a guy called Jacob. He becomes known as Israel. And through a fascinating set of circumstances, including betrayal and famine, uh, the whole, Israel's whole family actually ends up in Egypt, uh, down there, uh, not in the land that was promised to Abraham. And this is where the book of Genesis ends, with Abraham's descendants all in Egypt. And several hundred years go by, and we pick up the story in the next book, Exodus, Um, And we find that after several hundred years of living in Egypt, the Israelites have certainly grown in number to form a nation, as was promised to Abraham. But they're living in Egypt, which is not the land that was promised to them. And um, the Egyptians uh, get quite afraid of the great numbers of Israelites, and so they start to abuse them and they see them as a threat, so they... Um, put them under oppression as slavery. These Israelites are living in exile. They're not where they're supposed to be. So how was what God promised Abraham going to come about? The Israelites are crying out to God. They're like, what are you doing? Are you going to fulfill your promise? And they cry out to God to save them. God speaks and he says that he will deliver them at the start of Exodus. And so God does. He miraculously saves them through a man called Moses to bring the Israelites out of exile in Egypt. And he brings them across the Red Sea to the Sinai Peninsula, which is sort of this little... uh, Is this? Hey, there it is, this bit here. They cross over this little bit of water and they end up here in the Sinai Peninsula, but the promised land's up here. They're not there yet. Finally, they've been released from exile. They're on the way to the promised land. They're honouring God, but only for a moment. Throughout the rest of the Exodus story and in the following books of Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, God speaks to Israel through Moses and he says what he's going to do And he tells the Israelites how they are to honour the only one true God. He tells them how they are to do it. 
But these books also tell us how Israel failed almost constantly at honouring God and so they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness and in a sense still in exile because of their disobedience to God. So finally, uh, after Moses dies and after this 40 years, uh, Joshua becomes Israel's leader after Moses and Israel possesses the land that was promised to them. Yay! (laughs) But even then, they run into massive problems. Uh, The people continually fail to honour the one true God. Uh, And we read about these in the books of Joshua and Judges. We read in Joshua that God says, get rid of the foreign gods when you come into the land. Kick them out. I don't want any other foreign gods. I am the one true God. And they don't do it. They don't get rid of all the foreign gods. And so their hearts get turned away and they continue to worship many gods. Yet, amongst these stories of Israel's unfaithfulness, God remains faithful to his promise to Abraham and he delivers the Israelites from many enemies uh, and he raises up judges uh, who for a time turn the people's heart back to worshipping the one true God. And after a few hundred years of living like this, of God raising up judges and people turning back to God and then turning away again, Israel decides that they want to be like the nations around them and have a king. At the moment, they're still the 12 tribes and they're sort of not really a kingdom. Um, So this is where we have the United Kingdom. (laughs) Sorry, I I couldn't resist putting that flag in there. It's not the flag of United Kingdom of Israel, but you know, you get the point. Um, They ask the last judge, Samuel, if they would appoint a king over them. And so, through another series of circumstances, they do end up with a king. Uh, And it's under the second king of Israel, King David, and his son Solomon, that Israel really reaches its peak as a nation. Uh, It seems as if um, the promise to Abraham has been fulfilled. But we find in 1 Kings chapter 11 that Solomon decides to take many wives and they have... They bring their foreign gods and he turns his heart towards these foreign gods and so does not worship the one true God. And God says, he sends a prophet to him, he says, uh, the kingdom will be split because of uh, what you have done, you've perverted yourself. And when Solomon dies, that's exactly what happens. Uh, There's a fight for the throne and you get a split in the kingdom, the northern kingdom uh, and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom uh, is ruled by a rival dynasty and the southern kingdom of Judah uh, is still ruled by the descendants of David. And the kings of the northern kingdom all start worshipping other gods, all of them. Uh, God sends prophets to tell them, honour God, honour only him, reject all other gods, And he says, if you don't do it, you're going to be taken into exile. And surprise, surprise, this is exactly what happened. God said it would happen, and so it happened. The kings of the southern kingdom, uh, they also allow people to worship other gods, except for a few good kings who turn the people's hearts back to God. Um, This picture here is from when I was in Israel. This is at a... Um, 
one of the northernmost cities in what was ancient Israel, the city of Dan. Um, so it was part of that northern kingdom that worshipped other gods, and that was, uh, that's a recreation of uh, how big the altar would have been. Um, and this was an altar to other gods. <laughs> this wasn't the temple in Jerusalem, this is somewhere else. And this is them perverting their heart uh, from the one true God. Um, we've got plenty of evidence to show that the people of Israel, they didn't live faithfully for the one true God. And so it's finally at this point in the story, we've got this divided kingdom that we come to Isaiah. <sighs> I've, I've taken all that time so we can get to Isaiah, right? So this is where Isaiah comes in, okay? Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom in Judah. Uh, we read in Isaiah 1.1 that uh, he operates in the southern kingdom during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Imagine if you had four kids called that. That would be pretty crazy. Um, And this happens to be right around the time of the rise of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, They are situated towards the north of Israel, and they really start to flex their muscle at around this time when Isaiah is getting to work. And you see, Israel is a strategic uh, foothold in the region Um, Down here, you've got very fertile land and Egypt. There's really important trade routes between these big empires and there's this little piece of land. So these guys want to control that because they get a lot of money and um, get to control the trade routes if they have this little bit of land. And so uh, they're looking at Israel as a weak, tiny little nation that it is and go, oh, this is juicy. And... God uses them uh, to fulfill what he said to the prophets, that they would be taken into exile. The northern kingdom, for their idolatry, for their not worshipping of the one true God, they would be taken away into exile. And so, that's exactly what happens. The Assyrians come through and carry off the people. Um, They take the northern kingdom into exile. uh, And these people never return to the land. Uh, They're scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire. That was their policy when they conquered a new place. They would... Uh, take the people from their homeland and just throw them all over the empire so they would lose all sense of identity and culture. And the Assyrians actually come knocking on the door of Jerusalem, which was the capital of the southern kingdom. Uh, But that was under the reign of Hezekiah at the time. And Hezekiah actually heeds God's warning through the prophet Isaiah. And he turns uh, the people's hearts back to God. He gets rid of all the other idols in the city and they worship the one true God. And Jerusalem is delivered in these quite miraculous circumstances. However, uh, not long after, uh, some officials representing a rising empire from the east, the Babylonian Empire, uh, they came to Hezekiah, and uh, this is where we pick up Isaiah chapter 39. It details how Hezekiah showed these officials Uh, All of the treasures of Jerusalem, of the palace and the temple. And when Isaiah finds out, he prophesies to Hezekiah and he says that the southern kingdom would be carried off by Babylon. And Hezekiah surprisingly goes, well, at least it's not in my lifetime. That's his his reaction. He's like, well, that's a good good prophecy because it doesn't affect me. And uh, his sons and the kings afterwards reset up worshipping other gods and uh, the southern kingdom perverts their heart to God and so 
God said it would happen, and so it happens. They're carried off by the Babylonian Empire. Um, And I've said all of this because this history and these themes are important for understanding Isaiah as a book, as we come to try and understand God's word. Particularly important for understanding Isaiah are the details around the time of Hezekiah because that's Isaiah's writing around that time. Those are the people that he's writing to. It's really important for us to try and understand uh, the mind of the people who are receiving uh, what Isaiah is saying. And it helps us understand how to break down the book as a whole. Generally speaking, the book of Isaiah is broken down into two parts. You've got the first 39 chapters, which is where Isaiah is prophesying to the people of his day. He's prophesying to Hezekiah and the Jews living in Jerusalem before the Babylonian exile and actually just after and amongst the Assyrians. Okay? But after he speaks to Hezekiah and says the Babylonians are going to come through and Hezekiah is like, that's okay as long as it's not in my time, then he goes, it's like he goes home and God speaks to him and he prophesies to those who will be in exile, these people who won't be born for the next more than 100 years. He prophesies to these people who will be in exile, and that's chapters 40 through 66. These prophecies in chapters 40 through 66 um, are written to a people far from home. Uh, They're in a place where they're treated as second rate. Uh, They're far from a relationship with God. And it feels as though the promise to Abraham has been completely obliterated. There was this height of the kingdom. Everybody was like, yes, this is it. And then, bang, they're in exile. They're living somewhere else. Is it possible that what God has said will not come to pass? Is it possible that their idolatry is enough to break God's promise? Well, that's the fear of these exiles. Will God save the Jews from the Babylonians like he did the Egyptians? And this is what Isaiah says in that section from 40 to 66, in chapter 51, verses 10 and the first part of 11. It says, Was it not you, referencing God, who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over, referring back to the Exodus, right? Those the Lord has rescued will return, and they will enter Zion with singing. If you're somebody who's living in a, if you're in exile and you hear that, you go, oh wow. That's, that's what Isaiah is writing to these people and saying, no, God will deliver you. Enter a man called Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great of Persia, okay? So Isaiah specifically names this guy Cyrus several hundred years before Cyrus had ever been born. Isaiah says, uh, he calls out Isaiah and Cyrus in chapters 44 and 45. Um, and this is what he says in chapter 45, verse 13. I will raise up, this is God speaking, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. You see this little thing here? This is what's called Cyrus's cylinder. Uh, it's got lots of little tiny writing in it. It's carved. It's quite small. Uh, but on it, 
is written what Cyrus's essentially political policy was when they conquered a new nation. Um, what he would do is he would send the exiles home. God raises him up, and not for price or reward, he just sends them home. Now, he's still their king, he rules over them, but he sends them back to their land, which for the Jews was an amazing thing. God said it would happen, and so it did. But now the Jews have returned home. They're back in the promised land. But is everything now solved? Well, no. Unfortunately, when the Jews return home, they still continue to worship other gods and act unfaithfully towards God. You can read about some of this from some of the post-exilic uh, post-exile prophets like Malachi. So we're thinking, how is God going to keep his promise to Abraham when the people keep going after other gods? Well, this is where the second part of Isaiah is quite amazing. In this part that was written to the exiles, there are four prophecies which are often called the servant songs. Isaiah prophesied that God was going to send uh, a servant Uh, his servant, and Isaiah tells us what the servant was going to be like and what he was going to do. Uh, These things included that he was going to have uh, God's spirit on him, that he would open the eyes of the blind, that he would be a light to the Gentiles, that he'd be despised by the world and suffer for the salvation of his people. But Cyrus, Cyrus didn't do that. And so the exile isn't truly over with Cyrus. So we are still waiting for what God has spoken through Isaiah to fully come to pass. So what happens next? Well, after the Jews are ruled over by the Persians, here comes Alexander the Great. Here we get another massive empire coming through, um, the Macedonian Empire. This doesn't go so well for the Jews. Um, Again, Uh, Their part of the land is a very strategic foothold to to connect Europe uh, and Africa together. Um, So uh, they actually get very severely persecuted under this uh, Macedonian occupation um, and they get scattered throughout the the Greek world. Um, But, as as it happens, the Macedonian Empire has a lot of infighting and it, it eventually fractures and... Uh, the Jews actually get to rule themselves for about 100 years after this rebellion called the Maccabean Revolt. Um, And so maybe uh, this guy, Judas Maccabeus, who starts the revolt, maybe he was the servant that we were hoping for. Uh, But no. Uh, After that, here come the Romans. There's always somebody else, right? Um, Now, when the Romans come through, the Jews are still allowed to live in the land, but uh, they're, in a sense, still in exile. There's Roman legionaries in and around the temple and all these things. They can, everywhere around them, they can feel this foreign rule and foreign gods in their city. Consider how you might feel as a Jew at the time of this Roman rule. Like, there's been so many times of like, hey, deliverance, and oh, now there's another person. And hey, we've got deliverance, and oh, now there's another person, and we keep falling into honouring other gods. You're going to think, is God's word going to come to pass? When is Abraham's promise going to be fulfilled? 
Where is this servant who's going to deliver the Jews? Well, as we have seen, what God says will come to pass. Enter Jesus. As, these, as they write down the story of Jesus, the writers of the New Testament show us how Jesus is the servant that Isaiah wrote about and, in fact, God himself. They show that Jesus is the fulfilment of the promise to Abraham, uh, the promise to bless all nations through him. They show that God says uh, that what God says would happen and has now happened in Jesus. They show that Jesus did not serve any other gods, but totally devoted himself to the one true God, as no one else could. And he did it on our behalf. They show how Jesus, in choosing the Passover as the time of his crucifixion, it even shows that like Jesus chose the time of his crucifixion, he wasn't forced into it, he knew. He chose the time as Passover because he was performing a new exodus. He was bringing freedom from oppression and exile, not simply from the rulers of the world, but from the powers of sin and death that caused us to follow other gods and be in exile. But what does that all mean for the Jews at the time of Jesus? And what does it mean for the world now in these days before Jesus comes back like he said he would? Well, despite the fact that the Romans still ruled the world, Jesus, by rising from the dead, defeated the powers more powerful than the Romans or any other worldly power that we could possibly imagine. He defeated the power of death and the power of sin that made us exiles, slaves to idols, and unable to honour the one true God. I'm not sure if you realise it, but we are now, we are still living in exile. We are living in exile because we feel the pain and the brokenness of this world. Even if we don't realise it, we live in such a prosperous place that it's hard for us to recognise that we are living in exile. We've grown comfortable in Babylon. But Abraham's promise has now been fulfilled in Jesus. And all people have been invited to return from the exile from God. Just as Adam and Eve were exiled from God in the garden, now all people have been invited to return from that exile to be with God. Through Jesus, he brought us redemption, he brought us salvation, and he brought us back to be in the perfect relationship with God. Now you might say, it doesn't feel like that right now. You might stay, uh, you might still feel like the exile and the oppression of ungodly people in this world And you might still follow after other gods. That's actually true for every single one of us. Every single one of us does not perfectly honour the one true God. But those powers that hold us and draw us away from him have been defeated. They are just going down swinging. The war has been won even though the enemy keeps fighting. Jesus promises 
to forgive us for our idolatry when we ask for his forgiveness. He, he asks us to honour him in everything we do, but he promises to forgive us when we don't honour the one true God. He promises to forgive us when we don't honour the one true God. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what he says will happen. When he says, I will forgive you, you can know that he will forgive you. I've done a lot of talking about the past. What does it mean for the future? What does it mean for us and as we wait for Jesus to return, as he said he would? Well, Jesus promised that he's going to return and set all things right. Everything that is broken will be fixed. We will no longer honour anyone else other than Jesus. He is the one true God. And we will no longer live in exile. Acts 3, 19 to 21 says this, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. He spoke by his prophets. He said he's going to do it. You know what that means. It's going to happen. He's going to restore all things. We will no longer live in exile from God. We will no longer be separated from him. We will no longer have our hearts running after other things. He's going to come back and restore all things. We will no longer live in exile. What a glorious thing. And it is sure because he said, let's pray.